0: Welcome to The Blind Side, news and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin, And this is episode 97. It's a nice anniversary though because on the 1st of August 2016, we did our first episode of The Blind Side and of course it started off, if you go back that far, you know it started off on Mushroom FM. And like a lot of these things, people said, can we have it as a podcast? And I decided let's develop this into a sort of a blindness current affairs podcast and I started this. It wasn't like I didn't have enough to do but I started this because I felt that there was a need for a podcast that focused on blindness issues that sometimes got a bit political, of course focus on technology from time to time because it's playing such a big part in our lives, but really talked about a wide range of the blindness experience, if you will. And from that time the listenership just keeps on growing. we've got new ways to interact with got to new places like we're now on Spotify and iHeartRadio and we have our own Alexa scale and things like that. So it has been an amazing ride these last two years, and I'll probably get even more reminiscent when we get to episode 100, which, of course, won't be too far away. I want to preview a podcast that I'm wanting to put together in just a moment. But let me tell you first about who is on the podcast today. It's an extraordinary interview with an extraordinary woman, Darianne Slayton Fleming, is doing her best to put together a documentary on her late husband, who was blind, blinded later in life. We'll hear his story in a minute. And John Fleming, along with some friends, developed a technique where he, as a blind person, could skydive by himself. No tandem jump required. Pretty impressive stuff. And so Darianne is trying to keep that memory alive and keep his legacy alive alive. By developing a documentary and in the show notes we will point you to the Facebook page and the website where you can find out more information and maybe offer some support be it financial or otherwise. First a note about our contact information because I'm hoping that you might like to contribute if you have some expertise in the area I'm about to outline in a minute. You can send an email to the blind side, all joins together. The blind side mosen, And that email could contain an audio file if you want to record something on your PC or your Mac or your iPhone or your Android or anything. Attach an audio file that way. Or you can write an email down. You can also call the feedback line on 719 270 5114 That number, of course, is in the United States, but there are lots of cheap ways to call the United States or free ways to call the United States with your computer and your phone 719-270-5114 we are going to be doing an episode of the blind side very shortly on the topic of home automation and i thought that i would share some of my experiences because we're really starting to live the home automation dream now you know we've got um, the security system working through the iphone so we can arm and disarm it and uh, i don't want to preempt the episode too much but we've got security we've got lights we've got heat And we've got the door uh, working through home automation. And it's been such a fun project. There are some limitations here in New Zealand, really. And I will cover that in the episode on home automation. I thought it would be fun to ask for other people's experiences. Have you done this? Do you have smart doorbells, smart locks? um, What else? Smart curtains and windows and things like that. Heat. I'd be really keen to know what you are using Does it work with Siri and or Alexa or Google Home or any of those things? Uh, Tell me about your home automation adventures and how it's changed your life and how you got it set up. And if you were advising somebody about setting this sort of thing up, are there things that you would like people to know? You can just talk about it or write about it or demonstrate what you have if you like. And I think there will be a lot of interest in this. I think from an accessibility point of view, people understand in principle that home automation really has a lot of benefits to us. For example, we can tell now whether the lights are on or off, which is just wonderful. Because I think Bonnie does have a bit of light perception. I don't, blind as a bat, not in, not even any light. Uh, so it really helps me to just ask Siri, for example, what's on or off. So I'd like to talk about my own experience, but the appliances, the accessories, differ a lot around the world due to voltage and other standards. So I'd love to get. As much feedback from others as possible, we'll kind of have a home automation bonanza. If you can get your thoughts on home automation to me by the end of Monday of next week, U.S. Eastern Time, we will see what we have, and we'll probably put an episode together for maybe the week the week after this coming one. Um, so, by all means, get your home automation thoughts in, and I know there'll be a lot of interest in this particular topic. For a long time, it's been said there's a book inside every one of us just waiting to come out. And you know, I think that's true of podcasts, too. You're listening to a podcast right now, so you know the power of the medium. But where to get started? Podcast hosting companies, microphones, single track, multi-track, and what about a mixer? Do you even need one? I created a four-hour tutorial called Unleash Your Inner Podcast that helps you understand what you need to do to get a podcast up and running and the various means you have of creating one. It's easier than you think when someone explains it clearly. I've been podcasting since 2004, and I'm happy to share what I've learned all from a blindness perspective. Unleash Your Inner Podcast is available for purchase and instant download at mosen.org slash podcasting. Unleash your inner podcast today. And now, stories making news in the blind community on the blind side. Well, it was a very nice thing to wake up to. I think it happened Saturday morning last New Zealand time. There was an email waiting from IRA, the Visual Interpreter Service, telling us that they were going 24 7, which was an absolutely fantastic development. I, I guess for many of us, many of us think immediately this is great for people in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. And indeed it is, because at this time of year, IRA was closing at 5 pm. So right at dinner time or when we wanted to go out and perhaps use Ira to navigate in unfamiliar areas and maybe get to seats in a concert hall or something like that. We couldn't do that. And so having Ira available at those evening hours when we could really use it for a whole bunch of things is just a fantastic thing. I'm sure Australians feel the same way, Uh, getting home from your commute, you know, whatever you want to do. And, of course, in the UK, it was rush hour in the morning and other times like that that it wasn't available. So a big deal for UK subscribers as well. But also, of course, it's useful for many blind people who might be dealing with the non twenty-four thing and just find that some of their best work gets done at three or four in the morning. I have been lucky in that regard, as I've talked about here before. Most of my deliverables, with the exceptions of you know live radio shows and things like that, and meetings I have to attend, but my deliverables can be delivered at any time. And often I am awake at three or four in the morning. It's been great to have Ira available at those times when. I've wanted to um, get answers to questions and get things done. But now it is available 24 7 for everybody. It's a huge development, huge. And congratulations to everyone at IRA who has made that happen and have just been working away over a period of time to get to this point of 24 7 availability. I've updated my blog post on IRA to reflect this. And a few other things too, such as some new experiences we've had relating to gadgets that we've acquired and how we use Ira to assist us to familiarize ourselves with new gadgets. And also talking about Ira Live in the context of two blind people traveling together wanting to hear the same agent. I've actually found that Ira Live does the job well for that and that we don't need all our gadgets anymore. So that's nice. Um, you can find out more about that at slash Ira. That's the blog post that I try to keep updated with new things that I discover about Ira. slash Ira. And of course, Ira is spelled A I R A. We've been so busy with uh, blindside coverage lately that we haven't had a chance to look at too many news stories. But I thought I would insert this one because it may provoke a bit of discussion, particularly around the subject of whether you believe a guide dog handler should be the owner of their guide dog. This is actually something I feel very passionate about. And when I was the chairman of the board of the blindness agency here in New Zealand, it was a bit of a battle, but we got guide dog ownership through. And then when I wasn't chairman of the board of the blindness agency, they took it away again, which I thought was a paternalistic, retrograde, dreadful step. Now, here's an interesting story from the United Kingdom for you to chew over. A blind and deaf pensioner says his guide dog is being taken away because the dog has become too fat. Derek Beale, 82, says he will be a prisoner in his own home when his wonderful companion, Paddy, is taken away from him. Guide Dogs for the Blind, this is the UK organisation, is allegedly taking the drastic action over concerns the eight-year-old golden retriever is being overfed. But Derek insists his best friend's extra weight is because people keep giving him treats and the dog is only slightly overweight. The former catering manager says they're insisting on removing the dog because he's overweight. But I brought him to the vet and she says he's only slightly overweight. Otherwise, he's in excellent physical condition. They've offered me no help to get around and no replacement if they take him away. I'm blind and nearly deaf. It's brutal, he said. If you take away someone's wheelchair, they won't be able to walk. They are taking my life away. For its part, Guide Dogs for the Blind wouldn't give a specific reason for why Paddy is being taken away. The charity would neither confirm nor deny if the action was in relation to concerns for the dog's weight. But they did say this, sometimes for various reasons, guide dogs is forced to remove a guide dog from its owner's care. It is not uncommon for the guide dog owner to approach the media if they feel the decision is unfair. We understand that having a guide dog removed is very difficult for an owner and we go through a long process before we take this decision, which we only make after we exhaust all other options. So there you go. There may well be a lot more to it than we are privy to from that newspaper article. But I thought I'd include it because this whole subject of guide dog ownership really does interest me. It's as though there's a completely different standard that some providers of guide dog apply when compared with any other mobility aid or tool that we use. And I realize that these dogs are living creatures. But is it appropriate for these agencies to be policemen or women? if there is an issue with the dog's care. There is uh, the SPCA in many countries, ASPCA in the US, RSPCA in many other countries and similar organizations. And if people become aware of animal issues, if the animal is not being fed properly or is being abused in some way, no one wants that, then surely that is the place to go. It is not up to an agency that supplied the dog to be able to withdraw that dog at any time, is it? And yet what was interesting was a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, a resolution that I thought was going to be a no-brainer at the NFB convention about the NFB going on record as supporting ownership of dogs, in other words, you can purchase your dog from your guide dog school, was defeated. And I was really surprised by that. I thought it was extraordinary. So what do you think about the guide dog ownership question? If I were to have another guide dog and I haven't mainly because of my lifestyle I'm not uh, traveling enough within New Zealand a lot of the travel I do is overseas and doing that uh, too often getting a dog in and out of well into New Zealand is particularly tricky and also those really long flights are a bit hard on the dog I think so so there is that but if I were to get another guide dog I would not get one from New Zealand if I couldn't own the dog myself I would try and make an application with a school somewhere else that allowed me to own my dog, and then import the dog. It would require a lot of extra work. But to me, owning the dog is absolutely fundamental. What do you think? Get in touch. 719-270-5114 is the feedback line. The blindside at mosen.org is the email address. Here's a good news story. As a means of making out more inclusive and available to everyone, Santiago in Chile has just installed tactile plaques that allow blind people to, quote, see, unquote, the many murals decorating the streets. The plaques were recently installed throughout Chile's capital city. The installations feature raised reliefs of the streets' art as well as braille descriptions of the work. A downloadable app that corresponds to the plaques even has an audio description of each artwork. The miniature artwork will benefit the 2.8 million Chileans who have been diagnosed with some sort of visual impairment, which is about 16.7% of the population. Though braille and tactile touch panels are often featured in museums, this is the first time that such measures have been taken with street art. And apparently it was just three people, three women who actually got together and decided that this should happen. And they've made a big difference in terms of accessible art in Santiago. So it just goes to show that if you have an idea and you persist with it, it's amazing what a difference you can make. All right, here's a trippy one. Here is a really trippy one. I couldn't resist putting this one in. Blind man handles eight foot python after mistaking it for bathroom insulation. The eight-foot-long snake is said to have crawled up through the man's toilet and onto his bathroom floor. Stuart Saunders, 60, began to handle the snake from the tail and attempted to pick it up several times. His support worker Jason intervened after a confused Mr Saunders called him via his service intercom. On arrival, Jason said he'd walked in and out of the room several times because he just could not believe it. The commotion started when he heard loud banging noises coming from his bathroom as he was relaxing in his living room. It is thought that the terrifying scenario took place after the snake, considered to possibly be a pet, had escaped from its owner's house through plumbing and slithered up the toilet into Mr Saunders' Exeter home. Upon discovering the eight-foot snake, Mr Saunders said, ''I tried to lift it up, but it was too heavy.'' I rang the office, and one of my support workers went into the bathroom and said, You've got a snake in your bathroom. I was amazed. And I feel very lucky, he continued. Everyone was shocked. I don't know if it's a pet that escaped, but it was an eight-foot-long python, and I'm glad I didn't get it by the wrong end, or I could be in hospital or even dead. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Skydiving is something that a number of us as blind people have tried, but have you ever tried skydiving as a blind person on your own? I think all of the rest of us have done a tandem jump, and that's about scary enough for me. I did it once. Now, John Fleming was so committed to skydiving that he devised a way of doing a skydive on his own, which is a pretty significant thing. Now, John is no longer with us, and his wife, Darianne, is putting together a documentary to honor his memory, to, I guess, tell us, it's a bit of a parable in some ways, and to also tell us about how he did what he did, and look at his commitment to skydiving. And so, Darianne Slayton-Fleming joins me now. It's great to have you on The Blind Side. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Tell me a little bit about your late husband.
1: Well, John was sighted but always had trouble with his eyes um, and did not know until he was an adult that he had retinitis pigmentosa and that he would very likely lose his sight. And he was uh, born in Colton, well, in the San Bernardino Valley in California. Um, his dad was a ceramic tile setter who was Very good at his job. He taught John and all of his family, cousins and brothers, how to be tile setters. Um, and John's family had flying in their blood. Um, they either worked for air, air, plane companies making airplanes, or they flew them, and they were in the military. He had an uncle who was a colonel in the Air Force, and so John grew up always wanting to be a pilot, and as a teenager, he and his mom um, went up in a tower before radar and spotted aircrafts and let towers know when they were coming so he just did a lot of different things having to do with flying with the goal of wanting to be a pilot in 1961 he joined the air force and he did have poor eyesight and he tells the story of tipping the paddle just a tiny bit so he could see the eye chart. And he was able to enlist in the air force for the first four years. And then when he went to re enlist, they asked him how he got into the air force in the first place. Cause his eyesight had deteriorated enough that they would not let him re enlist. And so that was kind of the beginning of um realizing that he was going to have to give up some really important passions in his life. He he gave up flying after he almost had a mid-air collision with another airplane. Uh he gave up driving when he could no longer read street signs that he, there's a couple of funny stories about that. One is when he was driving to a tile job and he couldn't read the street sign. And so he parked the truck and it was his dad's truck and he climbed a, the pole to read the street sign. And his dad drove around the corner and caught him up on the street pole. And that was the last time he drove his dad's truck. And then he, um, was driving down the road in rural southern Oregon and stopped to pick up a hitchhiker and no one got in his car so he backed up his truck and he got out and he went over and asked if he was going to get in his if he wanted a ride or what and it was a mailbox <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so many of us blind people have those funny funny stories but john was just courageous and he was a risk taker and he He was bound and determined not to give up skydiving, even though his buddies were really concerned that he was risking his life.
0: It's an interesting thing to want to pursue, isn't it? Because I guess if you learn that you are losing your vision, a lot of people get pretty hung up, understandably, on the practical points like, how will I read? How will I perform daily tasks? So for him to be thinking about something like skydiving is quite unusual because I think most people would probably just assume that they would give that up, right?
1: Yes, right. And John never gave anything up without a fight. And he was a very passionate advocate for the rights of people who are blind. And he really started his process of adjustment to blindness, I would say, when he was a patient at the VA in Palo Alto, at the VA rehab, blindness rehabilitation. Um, and they, what he was there for was to get a computer with speech software. But they also wanted him to learn how to travel with the cane and be able to travel independently and he didn't like the idea of walking with a cane and most of us who are losing our vision don't want to do that at first and the mobility instructor said to him just humor me if you w- if you want your computer just go through this class with me and learn how to do this and so John buckled down and He learned how to travel with the cane, and then he got his computer, and when he went back home, it was just like freeing for him. Now he was literate again, and his brother Matt tells a story about then he got, because he went through the cane training, now he's able to get a guide dog, and he went and got his first guide dog, Kiowa, from Guide Dogs for the Blind in San Rafael. And then he was an independent traveler again, and from what I hear, because I didn't know him then, um, you know, the spark, the the happy person inside John was back.
0: Because coming to terms with living life non-visually, that's a big leap, right? I've dealt with a lot of people over the years who will take maybe 45, 60 seconds plus to read a very short email that might have taken them five to 10 seconds to read with speech simply because of pride, I guess, in some ways, the fact that they don't want to do things the non-visual way. So coming to terms with that is a really big deal.
1: Right. And John was such John really was a risk taker by nature. So once he kind of got over that hurdle of realizing, wow, I can still do the things I love to do. I just have to do them differently. He began to adjust and really he he made his friends comfortable with his vision laws. And I have never known anybody who was loved so much by his friends and family. When he came home with his first guide dog, his buddies would follow him without him knowing it to really be, to see if the dog was really doing what it was supposed to do. And they were, they just always had his back. And, um, so when he wanted to, continue skydiving and they were so worried about him they really tried to encourage him to give up skydiving and he said ain't gonna happen so he and his buddies sat down and did some brainstorming about how it would be possible for him to continue skydiving solo safely and and i'm sure it was more than one session because they figured out how how they would guide him down, he used... Do you want me to go into the process right now? I,
0: I'm or? fascinated because, I mean, as I said in the intro, a lot of us uh, do the tandem jump and we're sort of satisfied with that. But the idea that... A blind person can jump out of a perfectly good airplane (laughs) and and, and not need any kind of assistance. That's a really intriguing thing. Can can I ask you, before you detail that, what was the attraction about skydiving? Was John a bit of an adrenaline junkie?
1: Oh, he was. Before he was a skydiver, he did hang gliding and, you know, they drove cars fast and they partied hardy and everything he did, he did. To the hilt. And um, the attraction, went, well, when he was in the Air Force, they, he and his buddies were watching The Wide World of Sports, that show that used to be on the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And they were watching a skydiving um, show. And you never dared John to do something unless you were really prepared for him to do it because if you dared John he would do it and so he and his buddies John said well I'll do it if you'll do it and the other guys said well I'll do it if you do it so they went out and took when you learn how to skydive for the first time if you're not doing a tandem even if you're doing a tandem they do a little bit of instruction with you at first to show you what moves you need to do and when and so they went and did that and they started skydiving together but he could see them um pretty well and it, it just all started on a dare because they wanted to see what it was like
0: so how does it work or how did it work how was he able to do the skydive solo
1: so once uh he was unable to really See the ground and direct himself to his landing zone. They developed a system where he, he always carried two two-way radios in case one malfunctioned. And then there was someone on the ground. So when he would first come out of the airplane, they always knew what he was wearing. And I think he was, he always wore a red helmet and they would have him do some maneuvers in the air so that they would know which body up there was him and then as he got closer to the ground they would talk him down by giving him direction on which way to turn and um how far to turn like give me a 90 right or something like that but in addition to that he always had two audible altimeters, which beep at the different altitudes. And, and he knew what those beeps meant. And um, he also told me that he had something called a cypress, which was like the emergency chute. If If he didn't pull the cord, it would automatically take over. So, um, that was the kind of the gist of how he did the basics, like getting out of the plane and getting to the ground. But John liked free fall, free fall for really seasoned skydivers is where it's at. It's like dancing in the sky and they make various formations and, There's some pretty elaborate ones where they get on each other's shoulders. They do various formations in the sky. And so they also determined that John should be the first one out of the airplane because then he wouldn't get tangled in anybody's chute and he wouldn't have to look for people up in the sky. So he'd be the first one out. And he would be the dock or the base. And then everybody would come to him and they would make their formation. And when they were parting and it was time to open the chute, they would give him a hard shake on the arm or the leg. And that way he would know that they were moving to the next step, which was landing. And then he would start listening to the people on the radio and come down
0: hmm. is it a matter of counting when you're doing the free falling or do you need the altimeter for that because you generally sort of count a set number of seconds don't you before you pull the chute open
1: i'm not sure about the counting but you know john was a very experienced skydiver by the time he started jumping solo um without sight and i i've watched in in our documentary we will have at least one clip which is already available if if you go to our links and watch or listen to it um they the person with the radio would tell them when to flare so i'm not really sure what that means i'm sorry but i think that meant you know, he was getting close to the ground. Um, it was time for him to put, you know, get himself kind of in the sitting position with his legs straight out in front of him and get ready to come down.
0: It's a remarkable thing. Do you know if anybody else has copied this technique after he perfected it?
1: There was a man named Dan Rossi that John did a jump with. and. um they tongue in cheek called it the world's largest all blind freefall formation, hey. and you, and you can watch that on YouTube, um, and it will also be in our documentary. And Dan was when Dan was seven years old, he got um, blastoma, which is Cancer of the eye, and his dad took him to see as much as possible that he could see before he lost his sight. And one of the things he did is he took him flying, and Dan learned how to jump solo safely and i'm I'm he was quite a bit younger than John, so I believe that they probably corresponded by email and talked about it. Um, I believe that John was the first person to figure out these methods for jumping solo safely without sight. Um, the only person I know of for sure is Dan Rossi. And there's another guy named Steve that I don't remember his last t- name was in um, the military more more recently. We learned of him in about 2000. Um, He probably learned how to jump in the military, but um, those are the only people I know of for sure. I talked to someone at the ACB convention this year that said that he did it and he was using John's methods. And so all I know for sure is Really, we believe John was the first one to pioneer the methods for being able to skydive solo safely on his own.
0: And you mentioned the documentary. How did you get the idea to put that together and how's it going?
1: Well, John, you never spent very much time with John before you started hearing all of his skydiving stories. It was such a passion for him. And so amazing the way his buddies just embraced his passion because it was their passion too and helped him they worked with him to develop the methods and and they could continue having fun together and the stories were just so interesting um and he was so inspiring to people who are blind and sighted alike that when we learned that John had lung cancer for the second time, I didn't want his story to die with him. So I began talking with him about recording his stories and writing his stories. And one weekend, um, a year before he passed away, we went to Southern Oregon and met with his best buddies and started, um, recording his stories. So those were audio. And I asked him if it would be okay if I made, if we made this documentary about him. And so he was fully aware of it. I used to joke with him and tell him I was going to capitalize on his success. And, um, so he was fully aware that we were going to do this. This is to really show people who are losing their sight that life isn't over after sight loss. John's message to people was you can do anything you want despite sight loss. You might have to do it differently. You might need to take a different approach. Um, He would say, you just need to do some creative brainstorming and have some determination and help from your friends. And that's kind of the message of the story.
0: And it's being done in the form of a documentary, right? Rather than a biopic, it's not acted or anything like that.
1: No, right now it's um we're making it. We have audio interviews with him, we have video interviews with him. We've uh, done several interviews with people who jumped with him, um with his family about his growing up years and we have photos and video footage and newspaper articles because He's been in the news a lot, so we're using his voice as much as possible and footage of him as much as possible. If we're lucky and it turns into a feature film, then it'll probably be acted, I would imagine.
0: How do you go about doing something like this? I mean, you obviously had this idea while he was still alive, but now you've got the mechanics of actually putting something like this together. How did you get started on that?
1: Well, I have um, a friend who has made a couple of short videos and documentaries, and I didn't really know anyone else. That had that much experience. And so I just asked them one day, him and his girlfriend, who's my colleague. So these two people, I met them when Jenny, my colleague, was working with me with a vision support group network in Oregon called Vision Northwest. And we met when I was coordinating in the support groups. And then we, met again years later when we were working at the same location, and she became my supervisor while I was getting my license to be a clinical social worker. So our friendship got renewed, and I learned that her boyfriend had made some A short documentary about his grandfather in World War II. And I knew that he had some videography experience and we're really not very experienced and, but we have a passion for the story. And we've been enrolling Derek in filmmaking classes at, at the Northwest Film Foundation in Portland. And we're learning. As we go, we're doing as much networking as we can and we're looking for funding. And so it's it's going to be a process for us.
0: Do you have a time frame in mind, a deadline in mind for when you'd like to have the documentary completed by?
1: We would like to have it done within the next year. But we are also learning that successful documentaries don't always get made in in short order, we have um, learned of some people who have come up, have produced some really excellent documentaries, but it might have taken them 10 years. And if we could find a documentary production team that would want to take on our project, we'd love to work with them.
0: I think one of the things that appeals to me about this is that clearly it's being done from a blindness perspective and so it would be easy for some third party to make a documentary on a story like this that was kind of aren't you blind people inspirational right uh, but but what you're really trying to do is say look it was after john embraced a non-visual means of doing things when when in, in essence he surrendered to his situation and adapted that the success came, and that's the message you're trying to communicate to those who perhaps may be experiencing this in the future.
1: Right. And that, you know, we really, I'm sure this story has been told in many different ways by people who who lose their vision and find out that life is still possible. But John just had a light about him. He... He was a passionate advocate, and he was one who would look for a solution instead of saying, I can't, and giving up. And that was, that's just what has been so inspiring to those of us who know him.
0: It's a costly project, I imagine, to do something like this. How's the fundraising going? Are you getting a positive response?
1: So we have probably made a couple thousand dollars in, in the past two years, which we've done mostly through GoFundMe and through fundraisers that we hold locally. And um so obviously we we really need more funding for um things like a better video camera. Um, buying rights to music, buying insurance. If we do need to reenact a jump, um, we will probably need to react, reenact some jumps showing him being talked down by radio because we've only found one clip so far from his friends of someone talking him down. So these things cost money to go to go to a drop zone and um have someone jump is not is not free for us to travel to places where people are that have jumped with him will be costing us money and so we still we're still in the process of gathering material and cataloging what we have and Piecing the clips together.
0: And how can people support the project?
1: So, what would really help us would be if we'd love you to just go like our Facebook page, which if you go to Facebook, just do a search for blind job movie or John Fleming movie. And Fleming has one M. So, it would be Facebook.com. Slash Blind John movie, um, and if you can't find it that way, do a search for John Fleming movie. Um, because we're being told by funders that we need over a thousand likes on our Facebook page and over a thousand contacts in a database to show that we're really serious about this project. Um, we have a GoFundMe page, which is GoFundMe dot com slash blind john movie and your donations would be really appreciated if you know people if you know companies that would be willing to sponsor a project like this or give us giveaways for our high donors swag bags we'd love to know about that um and if you knew john and have not been interviewed yet, we would love to hear from you. So our website is blindjohnmovie.com.
0: And we'll provide some links to those in the show notes. You presented um, John to the ACB Angels in 2017, right, where they have a presentation um, for people who have been involved with ACB who've died in recent times and so you presented that uh, you presented him to ACB at that time too.
1: Right. John John I actually met John in ACB when we were in LA at um one of the conventions in 1997 or 1998. So John had um lung cancer twice and in June on June 5th 2016 He passed away after his second battle with it, and he was very loved in Oregon as well as nationally, and the American Council of the Blind of Oregon contributed the $500 donation needed to um, put John on the angel wall. So I grew up with Kim Charlson. Who is the president of the American Council of the Blind. She, I met her when I was like 13 going to a summer session at the Oregon School for the Blind. And when I told her about the documentary and that we were presenting John to the Angel Wall, she asked if we would show a clip. So that gave us a goal. We had, we wanted to make sure we had a really great clip to show at the convention in 2017 when we presented him to the angel wall.
0: For me, I think it's not just that John's message or legacy is that when you really want to do something, you'll find a way. But I also find it profoundly moving that, to honor his memory, you are spending all of this time and energy in making and trying to make this documentary happen. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's helping me keep his memory alive. It it gave me, it gave me tools to use to capture his voice since I can't see photos. And so I have, I have voice clips and I have these clips to listen to where you just hear him being happy in the very first second of the clip that we showed at the ACB convention in 2017, the first thing you hear is him going, yeah, whoo. And that was just John. It makes me happy to think about that and hear him.
0: Well, I wish you the best with the documentary. We will put those links in the show notes so people can easily click through to them and we'll, we'll keep in touch and I hope the documentary progresses well.
1: And so just one more um, plug. If you want to communicate with us about the documentary, you have any questions, you can write to us at producers at blindjohnmovie.com.
0: Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.